0: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm recording this in New York City, but I was recently in Huntington Beach, California, where it was beautiful. And it was also the place where we hosted the Code Media 2018 conference. We talked to smart people. We learned a lot of stuff. If you weren't there, good news. Some of that conference will be here on this very podcast. Like this conversation I have with Janice Min, um, who's kind of a publishing industry legend at this point. We talked about how she used to run us weekly back when that was a really profitable thing, uh, how she turned around The Hollywood Reporter, and crucially, how she ended up having dinner with Roger Ailes, Michael Wolfe, and Steve Bannon. This is a great conversation. It is one of the highlights of Code Media 2018, and you get to listen to it right now.
1: So cool. So cool. I feel like we're on Fan the Fanboy here. Yes.
0: Um, says your title up there. Strategist at Eldridge, yes. which is... A- the
1: owner of The Hollywood Reporter and Billboard and Dick Clark Productions. And... Uh, other stuff.
0: I keep waiting for you to announce that you have a new job or you're starting a new <laughs> thing. So we should just pop the bubble, right? Is there a new yes. thing?
1: Um, not yet. I have been on, I guess, what I would call an editor's gap year, <laughs> which has been, um, I think, it's, I, I've done this twice in my life. I did it once after Us Weekly, and both both jobs, I was in an editor's chair for seven years, which is, I mean, it's the it's lots of fun, but it is, a, it is very hard. And it's, 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 uh, it's hard on your personal life, and it's hard. It's just a grind. And I think, as you know, it, um, it's, a, it's a 24-7 job. Um, so I have had the leisure, and I have been fortunate enough to be able to take these years off of editing. I, you know, I, I, I am trying to be helpful to the owner still. And, um, and there's lots of things that I would like to I think one of the things that we are evaluating is how do you use editorial skills in an age when the traditional role that I played in the world is diminishing, right? And so how do you apply? it? mean, it's diminishing. Well, you able to
0: run big publications.
1: It's it's true, but I think if you look at the if you look at the, okay, how about how about that it has to share more space um, in the world, or it has to has to fight for more attention in a different way. That's true. And and financially fight for more attention yep. also, right? So I think one of the ways we're thinking about the world is how can you apply those editorial skills in, in the same way that you can and in the, with huge impact quickly um, in other platforms.
0: So I want to talk more about what you might be doing down the line, but I, want, I wanted to go back in time first of all. Yes. If, if people don't know your bio, and they should, um, you've had two really big... Editorships, right? right? And and you ran Us Weekly back yes. when I think that was really the last mega successful magazine. Right. Um, yeah. This is when most of the media was already trying to get to digital. Us Weekly was a profoundly right. non digital publication. Yes. Um, and, I, and I wanted to pick your brain about sort of what made that work then and. Right. and how could you ever replicate something like that today? It seems like yeah. you can't, but maybe I'm wrong.
1: Right. I mean, I think that, I think that there were the two places where I've been editor, uh, the, Us Weekly and The Hollywood Reporter, were two places that uh, were considered dead, right, and considered unrevivable. Um, and with, with Us Weekly, I, this was uh, uh, for it those... You came to
0: Us Weekly when it was already ascending, right? Uh, it was... Uh, Under Bonnie Fuller, right?
1: Uh, Bonnie worked there 14 months, yep. and I was her number two there. And then she left. And uh, it was not making money still at the time. And it was this crazy world that is never going to exist again where you had these uh, insane print publication economics where Us Weekly, and I think it's in the, the new Jan Winter biography, uh, was making, you know, I think clearing $90, $95 million a year in profit. And that's based off newsstand sales and ad sales. People were
0: buying the magazine they were at buying. a newsstand. Could, and that was uh, they were, enormously profitable. You could
1: sell 1.1, 1.2 million copies a week. On a newsstand, and, and this is
0: well into the internet era. This is well
1: into the internet yeah. era, uh, but at the time we were also launching a website, and that ended up doing quite well too. But it was it was definitely driven by this excitement of getting a publication, a, like a physical publication. So I think that was. I mean, I think the things that come along that succeed are things where you create part of part of what succeeded about both things was not necessarily. Um, I mean, you can't you can't focus group these things. It's our, some of it is just sort of thinking. And you're having an instinct that I was lucky to have on both these things about what, what is missing in the marketplace. And with Us Weekly, you know, I had worked at Time, Inc. for a long time, and I had lots of mass publications um, in style and people and Life magazine before it went away. And, um, uh, and at Us Weekly, you could see a moment where young consumers were consuming celebrity differently and were consuming it at... Uh, and, and higher income and more educated women were consuming celebrity. And, that, and basically that was it. It was sort of being able to, I think the earnestness of celebrity that you saw um, being conveyed by these mainstream mass publications was not where the conversation was going. And it sort of, and Us Weekly became, uh, you know, one of the, it had one of the highest income audiences available in publishing. It was, I think, an, uh, a household income of 77,000. So it was higher than Vogue. It was higher than you know, town and country and things that in, in, instinctually you wouldn't think were the case. So it was able to capture a moment and I think create excitement around it and ended up being, um, you know, largely quite successful, right? And
0: um, Did you have to spend time explaining why it wasn't really a digital product? Because this is, again... No,
1: no, no. I think, you know, this was, uh, uh, it, there was not this expectation that... Was, there was nothing. No one was ever saying digital first then, right? And, and, and
0: Jan Wenner really didn't love yeah, digital anyway. Jan
1: Wenner definitely was not saying digital first. Okay. And um, so, it, uh, and I, think, I think this is—it's been said a million times—but the the um, the difficulty in transitioning these large legacy publishing publishing houses is the money is just so much better on a print ad still. It doesn't matter, and so it's hard to divert resources um, away from that. I mean, it's still. Uh, it's pennies on a dollar compared to a print ad to get a digital ad. So, um, and you have to create a lot more expense to create digital content. Right? You have to create. You have to hire and build. So uh, that would that just was not that was not part of the equation. But ultimately, like in in so many things, the the internet caught it.
0: Yeah. The and then by that, by that point you'd moved to Hollywood Reporter, which was yes. a turnaround project. That's right. fundamentally a trade publication. Yes, but you deliberately said, "I want this to have a broader reach, and I yeah. want this to be a consumer yeah. product." Uh, and also, it's still a print and digital thing. Yes. Very much, a lot of people in this town are getting a copy of that in delivered. lots of ways. Yeah. Yes,
1: and um, so the Hollywood Reporter it was a uh, it was about to go out of business, and it uh, and so my boss, who I still work for, he he had the foresight to buy it and he bought it along with some other trade publications including adweek and billboard and um and it was it was i think we had several things going for us. First of all, we were in uncharted territory in Los Angeles which does not has has historically not had a huge publishing community has not had the same access to the same kinds of publications that we are very used to when we live in New York. Yep. Um and it it's it just was it was staggering to me that this is a town even i think when you live in new york and, and there was a whole mini eruption of last week when the new york times wrote about los angeles saying it was basically too lame of a city to to support a good newspaper yes language. exactly and yeah. so and that was a whole traditional new york la dispute that goes on
0: times uh, is run by the guy who used to run the la times exactly time. the
1: whole back <laughs> so um i think that uh I, I, so there was just there's always been this presumption i think if you work in East Coast publishing that people in Los Angeles are illiterate and maybe kind of stupid and don't care and 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 so i I was able to come <laughs> i was able to come i was able to come at it slightly differently i thought and be able to think um actually I don't believe that's the case and if you look at if you look at uh the people who work in the core industry that will be covered by The Hollywood Reporter, it's actually highly literate people who have to find source material and they uh, are obsessed with visual presentation. Um, and no one has ever served that market. And if you remember, this, is the, uh, this was the era of a woman, a blogger out here who made some news um, named Nikki Fink and who was, who was sort of terrorizing Hollywood and had a lot of influence. So, um, and so we were able to come in and... And change all that bring and I thought one of the most important things there 's a huge amount of advertising tied into um, print in, the, in hollywood and hollywood 's one of the strangest last captive round
0: award season. yes,
1: last captive audiences that is not is not going to get uh, hijacked by facebook and google there 's awards advertising which brings in. Um, it's a hundred million dollar year business, and it's it's uh, the, those awards dollars are disseminated to a handful of places. But you're not
0: going to put a ladybird campaign on Facebook.
1: No, you, you it's need billboards to, yes. and print. Right, you need to reach people who live, you know, in nine zero two seven two, right, or 90, 90120, right, and um, uh, and so it was. We really concentrated also on paying off what print can be, and not. And if, you're, if we were going to do a print execution doing the best one we possibly could in terms of photography, in terms of subject, in terms of writers.
0: So all of a sudden you were creating these sort of Vanity Fair-like spreads of mm-hmm. stars and really glossy photography and you were getting really high-powered A-list people to come talk yes. to you. Um, did, that, did that work, turning that into a national publication? Did that, did yes. that succeed?
1: Yes. Yes. It, it succeeded almost, almost out of the gate, which was great. And... Uh, hugely gratifying because I think when you don't go out right, when you don't go out right, the, the fixing process is torture, right? And, and so we didn't have proof of concept. We, we didn't have to suffer through proof of concept out of the gate. And oh, I think one of the things that was an advantage to being an outsider in Los Angeles was being able to um, bring an outsider sensibility thinking, okay, well, these stories matter to anyone who doesn't live here. And that was one of the goals. This is the only way you can grow out of a very limited market.
0: Did you have to continually sort of explain why you were investing in this stuff and what you hired real journalists? I mean, the trade, sh- the trade serve a purpose, and yes. that's to tell people in the trade what is happening in their business, but there's usually not an expectation that there's going to be great writing and great photography. Correct. Um, and, you know, I think it's reasonably, reasonable to assume that people who are getting the trades don't need that.
1: Right. Um, I, did we have to explain it to the audience? No, to, to to the owners? To your owners. No. It was, it was I think, this was, I, I started at The Hollywood Reporter right as publishing in New York was starting to collapse and contract. And I felt like I had the greatest leisure, uh, the greatest gift granted to me by not having someone sit on me for uh, for money. To, to dot watching every It It's a good gig. It was really good. It was yeah. really good. And that was, but, you know, I think what, 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 our owners were trying to do was not just, they were able to use, and remember, Los Angeles was just emerging as a great city at that point, and in, in perception. Um, I think people who lived here already thought it was. And to be able to accrue influence in, in a city that would eventually control content, all content, is, is, was, a, was important to him.
0: One of those journalists you brought to Hollywood reporters, was Kim Masters, yes. been the, the, sort of the vanguard of the Me Too reporting, done some yes. of the best reporting. I've talked to her on the podcast. She's awesome. Um, she was my first hire. I, I, one of the reasons I had you here is I wanted to talk about your sort of perch, how you see that story playing out in Hollywood and then in the rest of the world. I mean, this has been going on since September, October of so, last yep. year. Yep. Um, I keep waiting for it to dissipate in terms of the pace of the right. stories or, or people's interest in the same way that people were sort of expecting the Trump story to die down at some point. Do you see that going full board?
1: I mean, this is... uh, uh, Michael Lewis did a great story for Bloomberg last week where he interviewed Steve Bannon. And one of the things, there are probably very few things I agree with Steve Bannon about, but there was... But Steve Bannon gave a quote, and I think think they were watching... Was it because they were watching the Golden Globes? I I can't remember. They were watching
0: the inauguration,
1: weren't they? uh, Or the, the State of the Union? Yes, they are watching State of the Union, and, and he started to talk about um, the Me Too movement. And, he, and Steve Bannon, who I think has a knack for recognizing movements, he said, uh, "He said this is. He said the top seven stories today are about men being taken down and powerful men. And he said this is it. This is the you know this is this is like the beginning of the Tea Party movement. This is the end of the patriarchy."
0: The suggestion is he thinks that's a bad thing.
1: No, no I, don't, you think, I, I think you think well, are aligned I think, with him. You know, having spent some time with Steve Bannon, I think that he he is in the thrall of anarchy and chaos. And I think I think for him, if you're Steve Bannon, you think how what is the opportunity in that?
0: So that, that's you, you, you had dinner with Steve Bannon. I did
1: have Steve dinner And Roger
0: Ailes. And Roger Ailes. And Michael Wolff.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: this is this, one of the centerpieces of, of... Fire and Fury. Fire and Fury. This is one of the story. You know, we can talk about the book a little bit, but there's a lot of, like, did that really happen? And Did he make yes. this part up? And then you came out and said, no, no, the, the whole part about the, the dinner is verbatim, I was there... Yes. This is really why I wanted to have you. It was one of the reasons I wanted. To What's it like to have dinner with Steve Bannon, Roger Ailes, and Michael
1: Wolff? It is so. Is
0: it a fun dinner?
1: Fun is, fun is maybe one of the words. I mean, it's like I've certainly dined out on it after you know yeah. since then. But I, I, so I would say it was one of those like. I just don't even understand why it happened. I... I, I Did you...
0: Does Michael say...
1: Yeah, Michael, Michael, who, you know, Michael's worked for me, he worked for me, at, and we've been friends a long time, even before The Hollywood Reporter, but he worked, he became a contributing editor at The Hollywood Reporter, and he wrote me the loveliest note at the end of 2016, December 2016, I still have the email, and he said, hey, you know, we've done, I thank you for a great year, we've done great things. By the way, Roger Ailes and his wife are coming to dinner January 3rd, would you like to come? And so, um, and so, of course, I have to say yes, because how do you not do that? And this is months after Roger Ailes had just been removed from Fox News. And he was not doing interviews. We, came, we had tried to get him for an interview with his wife for a cover story of The Hollywood Reporter, but he was very, very cautious about not broaching his, um, his agreement with Fox mm-hmm. to not speak. And obviously, there was uh, a lot of money at stake there. And
0: so... So, one, one of the most reviled people in American politics cr- and media. And you said, yeah, I would like to... Of
1: course, it. of course. You know, this is sort of one of those things where my husband's, you know, he's, he's perplexed, I'm like, why would you go do that? And, and then, you know, to me, I felt like, why, how do I not go do that, right? And so then, so then Michael emails me a few days later, and he said, um, I think Steve Bannon's coming, too. And I said, okay. And so, um, so we go to Michael's house, and he lives in New York City, and we, uh, and so no one had seen Ailes in a while, and you have you hear all these rumors about his health. Mm-hmm. And so um, there, Michael, so it's a duplex, and dinner was suddenly shifted from having to go upstairs to having to enter on the main floor. And so this is where you see, uh, at the request of the Ailes, And so you see Roger, Roger comes in in a wheelchair, and. Uh, and he, but his his personality is totally fine. And, um, and I, I, I know Roger from, from working at the Hollywood Reporter and, uh, which doesn't mean I agree with what, what he had done. Um, but I kissed him hello and he, you could tell he was very unstable on his legs. And so he, I, I don't know what, what medical situation was going on. Um, and then Bannon was three hours late. So it was just Michael, Michael's girlfriend, me and the Aileses, and they proceeded to talk, to mount the almost believable defense of Roger's innocence. And um, a lot of, there was a, and you know, you can feel yourself. They're clearly very, you know, Roger's are very skilled, very skilled at presenting an argument. This is what Fox, how Fox yeah. succeeded, succeeded. And he, um, lots of talk about how, about Rupert Murdoch not, being jealous of him, about uh, the brothers not liking him. Uh, Megyn Kelly. Megyn Kelly had just signed with NBC. Some you know, very, they were quite sure Megyn would be failing. Um, uh, and there they were so many sort of conspiracy theories. There was one about how there was a story that had come out about Roger that he had chased someone around his desk, a woman around his desk. And Mrs. Ailes said, you know, there's just no way he could have done that. He was in a wheelchair then. That's impossible. So at some point, I'm, you know, I like, I'm, you know, you're a little bit being held captive and listening to this. And at some point, I really like—it's enough that you're almost like, "What if they're right?" And we've all, you know, "What if they're right?" And and then, you know, then later you're like, "Of course they weren't." But um, but you know, the she she's quite uh, she she loves him completely and. Uh, He, one of the interesting things, Roger...
0: Are you filing all this away, thinking this is going to be a great book one day, this is going to be a had no I didn't
1: really know Michael's intention with this dinner, except just to sort of, you know, this is like classic Michael. Michael likes to bring people together for dinner. And I think the thing that was interesting to me is, I I didn't know, I was trying to think, what do they want out of this? Like, what's in it for them, right? And because the level of candor that they, with which they spoke was stunning. And... Uh, the level of trust to be able to, you know, and I think, I think, you, you know, one of the things Michael Wolf has been criticized about now is that people think that they're, that maybe he violated the trust of some of his sources, right? And, but that, that was definitely not the case of with, with Roger Ailes and his wife. And they
0: knew this was going to end up in a book one day?
1: That was all worked out after the fact. So they, 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 there was permission so there was a license to have a very, very frank, freewheeling discussion. Okay.
0: So you, you go home after watching Roger Ailes and Steve well,
1: Bannon. Well, since Bannon shows up. Bannon shows up three hours late. And so Bannon's like, uh, he's texting Michael the whole time, almost there, almost there. And you know. And then, so like main course is served, and then we're in, we're in dessert by the time um, Bannon shows up. And he very, um, he very declaratively does not want to drink. Um, and he's offered a drink, and no, I'm not drinking. And um, and then he just uh, looks
0: like he drinks, but he doesn't drink. That's the that story. I,
1: I guess. Yeah. And so then, um, <laughs> and so then he, so then he and Roger. So they, they well, I thought. So press Let me just back up and say one of the things that Roger said at dinner that was so fascinating. And, and, and I, I'm not being a Roger Ailes apologist. I can tell you he is quite enjoyable to talk to if he is trying to win you over, right? I mean, he's very charming and funny. And one of the things he said was, um, one of the things he said was, uh, uh, you know, these guys, you know, these guys, and he meant, you know, this was right before the inauguration of Trump. These guys, I mean, I'm a Republican, but these guys scare me. So he was, you know, even he was cautious. And so in hindsight, I've thought about what would Fox News be today if, if would he be friend or foe to the administration if Roger Ailes were still in charge? Uh, so Bannon shows up, and the the two of them have a really friendly rapport, and they immediately get into it and start. This was at the time when um, Trump was having that I guess people called them perp walks through the Trump Tower between election yep. and inauguration, and so they were they
0: you, were Mitt Romney dance at dinner. Yes,
1: I mean it's yeah. So they immediately start talking about. And These are the things where you don't know what the truths are, right? They immediately start talking about who came up and who, and who wanted jobs and who they were considering. Um, they talked about their meeting. Let's see, I think they talked about their meeting. I think they talked about Anna Wintour coming up. Um, uh, and so you can imagine... His description of a meeting between Donald Trump and Anna Wintour, right? And um, I think you know, and 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 he said he, he, I think Bannon actually used the words she wouldn't do the perp walk, um, which was pretty funny. And then then they immediately the two of them just went into it with the cabinet. So the cabinet was being selected at the time, and uh, so they started talking about John Bolton. And you know, Michael writes about this in Fire and Fury that uh, Ailes thought Bolton should be in the cabinet, and Bannon. Van and said that Donald Trump doesn't like his mustache, and so it, that will never happen. So all this is
0: going on. Are you thinking <laughs> i I got to i got to tell someone about this, or are you just locked in this? I,
1: I, I'm just like, hey, remember it all. Remember it all. I'm just trying desperately you can talk to
0: talk about it on stage. It
1: yeah, exactly. then, yeah, then in, a, in a year and a half, or I want
0: to do a full podcast about this dinner. But I had other questions. I yes, to ask yes, you yes. About. Um, you you have insight into the music business through Billboard. Yes. Um, we were talking about this uh, the other night. Um, the Grammys came out. I don't really think it's surprising that the Grammys audience is diminishing. Because live TV is diminishing, right? But, but you had a particular insight into why that show in particular doesn't. Well, okay, share that with so us. So
1: CBS, which I think has the oldest audience of, of any broadcast network, and that's saying a lot. That's old, and I think it's probably. I think it's pro. Uh, I I don't want to misspeak, but I think it's early sixties at this point. And so you have Kendrick Lamar come on, and um and TV, you know, TV sets are turning off or turning away. It's it's. I mean, I think they would have Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons on if they could, right? And that's that's sort of more... What,
0: what do you do if you're, CB, if you, if you're the CBS and you have paid a lot of money for this I, I,
1: yeah, Well, show. this is the big conundrum of award shows right now, right? Because you are in this business. The, the Recording Academy, which does the Grammys, is a non-profit. So they are out there trying to get the highest license fee from a network. CBS just happens... To be able to pay the highest license Mm -hmm. fee, and so you are trying to create a show that serves so many masters, right? And um, and if you don't have, you know, even if you do have Taylor Swift and Bruce Springsteen and some of the biggest, most mainstream artists in town, not everyone's going to be happy. And so this this happened to coincide with a moment, you know, there was USC released a study about the about female Grammy nominees, uh, right, shortly before the broadcast, and so this tees it up for you know, for, for controversy already. And the study talked about the lack of female nominees And I think they said 10% of female nominees. 10% of Grammy nominees were female in the last five years. And so, so people are fuming, right? You, people are very angry. You think angry. people are not
0: watching the Grammys because of that, though?
1: No, I, th- I think people will. I think people will hate watch. Also, uh-huh. right? I think they want to see maybe how this gets addressed that night. Um, but remember, there's no Taylor Swift coming on. There's not a big Katy Perry or Adele moment. So maybe some females weren't watching. Um, and then, and, but the thing with that study that and I'm not defending the Recording Academy because it does need to change. But the study only counted the first, the top, I think, see, I t- top four categories in at the Grammys plus producer of the year, um, and and. So they got killed for that, and then uh, Neil Portnow, who's a CEO, came out with a remark about stepping up, that women need to step yeah. up, which was very poorly Ill received. Well considered Yeah, but Neil Portnow is not, the, he is not Harvey Weinstein, I mean, there is, there, you know, there's, yeah. not an, there's not an equivalency there. He's, he, and I believe the Recording Academy will do, I, and I have some insight into the, into the fact that they will do good things to change things, but I think, like, all these Me Too stories, and this is one of my, this is one of the things that's frustrating to me as someone who Underst- or who has worked in edit is that. So let's say the Grammys are the tail end of an awards process where, and the lack of there should be further examination into okay, but they are only getting what they're submitted. This is like Oscars so white a few years ago. They, the Recording Academy can only consider what they what's getting submitted to them out of an industry. the
0: pipeline problem. Yeah, out of, of an tech.
1: industry that is colossally sexist and male. I mean, it makes it makes Hollywood look. You know, like National organization of women, right it looks like like it looks it looks I mean it is really old, old white guys, and um, uh, so I think that, but you know, I think they are, became an easy target because they happened to have an awards broadcast that represents music that night um, so I, I so if music changes, it'll be in, it has to be in conjunction with the with the labels and with. The reporting Academy, in the same way that you know, I think that the um, Motion Picture Academy, which oversees the Oscars, got really beaten up right over Oscars. So White, But they've did a. I think they've done a good job of leading change in Hollywood in terms of that that diversity.
0: How important is it for the Grammys for the Oscars to? Be progressive to be better about the people they're putting on stage. To think about well, diversity. I mean, I think
1: it's economically important, right? If you look at Hollywood as the biggest export of America, um, and you, and you're also looking, I mean, look at the year that Hollywood had. It's a, they had a terrible year in, ter, in terms of people going to movie theaters, and I, if you know, I'm sure the Oscars are nervous about their broadcast coming up because um, you know it's not. I mean, there are some really fine movies, but it's not like three billboards caught on as some national craze that the kids are loving and talking about, right? Right,
0: but that's different than diversity and whether or not the progressive, right? You can make big movies featuring white people and people will go see them and maybe the Oscars will be a bigger deal that year. I mean, It doesn't seem like they're linked.
1: No, I do think they're linked because I think it's about feeling like, is this thing for me? Or has it become, you know, I think you can easily paint a brush on Hollywood as elite and liberal, which, which, you know, is often the case done by... Republicans and it, it becomes an us versus them thing, and I think, you know, and so it becomes. Uh, I, I think being able to feel like it's inclusive of all talent is an important thing. If you just look demographically at the country, um, I think audience-wise, I don't know. It becomes, you know, I think there are people who don't watch these shows now because they do, they turn it off for the politics. It, they find they want escape, and um, I mean everything. Everything needs to be examined in these situations. The They're not, why is it that every award show host is male, right? to this, you know, almost to this day, you have, we're in the sort of the biggest according to Steve Bannon, revolution of our time. And, you know, every host of the major awards show is a man. And they're, they're expected, the pressure's on them to get up and joke about it, right? Um, the producers, Jennifer Todd is one of the producers of the Oscars, but every man, largely, is every executive producer. I mean, producer. you think if Amy
0: Poehler and Tina Fey were, 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 were doing the Oscars this year, they'd do better than Jimmy Kimmel in terms of ratings?
1: I, I don't know that, but I think I think the fact that when Amy Poehler and Tina Fey did the Golden Globes, it was viewed as such as such an event and so novel that it made a lot of news. That oh my God, women are doing it. I mean that was that was and then you know then you think who's telling those stories about it? That you go to the nightly news. No one's going to the nightly news. But if you go to the nightly news, that there are three there are three men also telling you about what's going on. I mean it's you know I think there, I think the thing with the Me Too movement, it's it's very easy to latch onto these stories of abuse because they're very. They are understandable, and there is—it's satisfying to take out bad people, right? Um, but I, you know, I I have yet to see the conversation really move towards how do you actually change the conversation around the power structure of of everything, right? I mean, everything. And and if you look at, um, you know, you can take out you can take out an executive, you can take out a producer, whatever you can, uh, but. Um, but I mean, I don't think the, peop- the women who worked at that Ford plant were really worrying about the Michelle Williams, uh, Mark Wahlberg pay gap, right? I mean, I think that these these there's so many institutional things that allowed this moment that we're in to happen that have gone. Unchecked, and so, I don't even know where you begin.
0: So you're a woman. Yes. You are going to have another job. Right. Your name comes up for Vanity Fair. Mm-hmm. and I think The Tronk folks talk to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so at some point you're going to be running something. Right. That's something that someone else has, or something that you're going to build. Right. Um, how are you going to run things differently, given given what's gone on the, on the last couple of years? This is, yeah. this is forefront in your mind.
1: Right. I mean, I think that um, I, I think that I think that there's always this. There's always this. Um, problem that you have to fight where where in when you're when you are doing journalism with access, right? That you that there is always there even as much as you fight it, there's always a compromise you're making in your mind. And you know, I have to say one of the things I go back and look at some of the people we put on the cover of the Hollywood Reporter, and like you can start Xing them out as people who've been exposed in the Me Too movement. And you know, and then and, okay, so well, why, well, why didn't we pursue that? Did we know? Did you know? And if we did, if we had known, you, the answer is no. But had we known? I mean, I, I remember we had a Louis C.K. cover, and right around that time, I think the Gawker had posted its story about Louis C.K. masturbating in front of women, which I never knew was a real thing till this Me Too movement. Um, and, Nor did I. Right, and so we um, we you know we joked we we joked about it. We didn't pursue it, and we ended up doing a you know very sort of fawning story. Not fawning. It was a very it was a very good story about Louis C.K., but very positive story about Louis C.K. And I don't know, like at that moment in time, what happens if we had done that? What's right? on
0: the journalism front? What about the sort of the structuring and yeah, the managing I mean, okay, of, so of the company I would say you're going to run? Yeah.
1: So it. I mean, these, so the thing, different things just happen when you have a woman in power, in, in, in any given place. I, at the Hollywood Reporter, it was a 54% female staff, and not, you know, and they weren't, not assistants. You know, they it was at, at the highest levels, and that definitely changes the way you approach material. It, it does. It, I think it's, uh, I, what, you know, one of the things that shocked me about this so-called trade, these trade publications, was how. How male they were, and like there was not a time when after I got there where I didn't have to remind people like, you can't just have, you know, there's no female mentioned in this story. There's no female on the page. You don't quote a female, and then trying to get past this whole thing of the only ways that females are represented, are when they're actresses, and then trying to do things like a billboard, which were, you know, you don't need to dress all young, young female performers, you know, like. They're prostitutes. Like you can make like you don't have to sexualize every person, every female we photograph. And I think part of it is um, is changing the way that you. I mean, there are ways that would never be declared, and you can't. You you know, you would never come into a meeting and say we're going to change the way that media is created. But it's it's done through leadership at the top,
0: and reinforced and repeated. But
1: yes, yes. I mean, I think there are just there's so many things that you have to sort of counter when you're editing, and like strange things that sound small but mean a lot, like taking out phrasing, you know, people to this day, very good writers will still describe a blonde, blue-eyed woman as an all-American beauty. Like, what? so what does that mean, right? And so being able to strike that and being able to strike out lines like, you know, um, so-and-so who's 40 and still unmarried. No, like, that's not, you know, that's not, I mean, the the value that's put, the value judgment put in a statement like that is enormous, right? So um, I think it's, uh, I mean, I think, whatever, you know, I'm saying the most obvious thing, but being able to decide that words and images play a huge role in how, in how, other, in how younger people or other people's opinions are shaped.
0: I have more questions, but I want to open it up to you guys to talk to Janisman. and I want to have a question for her, and some of Janisman's competitors are here, or former competitors are here. Um, all right. But you you give us a couple seconds. They bubble up. Um, can we talk a little bit about, about the, the media landscape? You were yeah. talking about Los Angeles, yes. Not having an adequate newspaper. Right. Um, as someone who works in this town, as someone who needs news in this right. town, what do you what do you think? What's going on at Trunk? Well. <laughs> and are you going to run the LA Times? Here, we'll, we'll make it a two.
1: <laughs> well, okay. So I will tell you that they that Trunk had approached me. Last year, so they had come into town, and they were meeting. Uh, you know, the, uh, so Michael Farrow, who is the chairman of Trunk, I believe is his title, uh, was in this. In this death spiral with Patrick soon who and they had equal shares of trunk and they had unceremoniously, without his knowledge, dumped Patrick Soon-Shang from the board. And so I, if, if I understood correctly what was going on, Michael Farrow came into town and was on a charm offensive with major players in Hollywood to try to ba- uh, line up money, backing, emotional support, raise his profile. Um, and so um, our... Our owners briefly looked at the Los Angeles Times. Um, they wanted to, they wanted, you know, it, it's a jewel, right? And, you, and someone, will, someone will do something amazing with it. Um, and then Michael Farrow reached out to meet me separately. And I talked to him about it. They, um, they definitely had whatever version of that pyramid plan that sort of went around a few weeks ago was, was brewing. Um, I think one of the things that was interesting to me, and I think you have a different opinion of it, was. Uh, that they were terrified of the newsroom. They were terrified of their newsroom, and I think this is one of these situations where—not
0: ex- a good look for a newspaper. No,
1: no. But they didn't want to. They clearly didn't want to interact with them. And I think, and, you know, you see the end result of that now with the guild, where they, um, where, where you where you have a newsroom actively reporting on its owners and just going for it in the most, you know, in the most brutal way. And it was, and then being able to funnel those stories. I, I mean, I've joked about it. It's like. Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad. You get, you know, you take these things that you can then put out in the world, and bad
0: to piss off a newsroom.
1: It's it's really bad to piss off a yeah. newsroom. So, um, you know, I I, it was unclear what their overall intentions necessarily were. If they wanted to create this network of shared content off at other other assets, some of them I've never heard of that they owned, um, and I I don't think that they ever. I don't think they were as dismissive of content as has been, has been portrayed, but I don't think they ever really thought, I don't think they ever really thought, you know how we get better at the LA Times? You know, Michael Wolff, I had dinner with him the, the other night. He said, why, why haven't they ever just announced a strategy of maybe we should just do really, really good content, right? And, that, and they seemed to have a lot of other bells and whistles that they wanted to employ around that. And, uh, you know, eventually I withdrew my name from, from that, which, so it's been, it's been fascinating to me to watch the whole thing unfold. But uh, now there's another opening. Well, yes. You want to so the L.A. Times? I, <laughs> Listen, I think I, I I think the L.A. Times is is an amazing is an amazing opportunity. But I think that you see, I think that I think that it's all about the ownership, right? And I, I think Patrick Soon-Chung has long been known as the richest man in Los Angeles. I think he may be second to Elon Musk now, depending on the price of Tesla stock. Um, but with that comes you just don't know, right? Uh, and is he a Bezos or, you know, is he Tronk part two? I don't think people know that yet. And I think he'll, I think he said the right things. I read the memo he sent to his staff. It was great. And if that, if that is true to what they do, then, I mean, would there be anything better than a great Los Angeles paper? I think that so much media, it's, it's always been amazing to me given the importance of California and, and the size of its economy, sixth largest economy in the world, that it doesn't have the profile in media that that East Coast counterparts.
0: Sounds like you're itching to do something about that.
1: Well <laughs> I would I would love to be the a big consumer of it, I guess I would say, is is, you know, if I had the East Coast version of I'm sorry, if I had the West Coast version of the New York Times, like focused on stuff out here, it'd be pretty great, right?
0: I'd, I'd read it too, even from New York. Right. Yes. Janice, this was great. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Hey, it's Peter, back again in New York. Thanks for listening. It's great, right? Um, if you like that good news, there's plenty more over at Recode.net. We have full coverage of Code Media 2018. You can see full video of everything we did. Um, you can read about it. You can listen to it as well. Um, all we ask you in return is that you do one thing. Tell someone about Recode Media. You know how to do that because you are listening to this podcast. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits the show, and to my producers, Gold Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. I will see you soon.